Sean Curran's career in the arts spans 30 years. Curran is known for his performance work with Bill T. Jones' Arnie Zane Dance Company and as an original New York City cast member of Stomp. Curran's 30 dance works for his professional ensemble, Sean Curran Dance Company, are characterized by collaborations across genres and have toured to nearly 100 venues in the US, Europe, and Asia. A sought-after choreographer and director for opera and theater, as well as for numerous college and university dance departments. He has taught extensively at the American Dance Festival, Harvard Summer Dance Center, Bates Dance Festival, and Boston's Conservatory of Music. Can you describe your path to dance and what or who initially inspired you to start dancing? The sort of family legend is that I was a hyperactive kid <laughs> and uh, my parents are both Irish immigrants. That's a big part of my story. But I was in a supermarket with my mom and my Aunt Sally and Aunt Sally is the woman who paid my mother's way from Ireland to America oh. in the late 50s and I was dancing to the Muzak in the supermarket. And Aunt Sally said, oh, you should send him to Irish step dancing lessons. <laughs> so I went to Irish step dancing lessons. It was an hour on a Saturday morning. Was good at it for some reason and learned quickly. And I did that through high school. So what is what was your first performance, do you recall? I do have a vivid memory of being in, I think, junior high school. And my parents took me and my sisters to a performance of Jesus Christ Superstar, the national tour. <laughs> yeah. Now, I think my Irish Catholic parents thought this was like just a straight up <laughs> religious, <laughs> like they did not know it was a rock opera. And I have a memory of being in the balcony and not much memory about the show, but in the crucifixion scene, the Christ character was on this triangle thing and he floated up, but there was a mirror ball, you know, like you'd yes. find in a disco. <laughs> and, the, and I thought, how do you do that? And it was love at first sight. Yeah, so, you were so inspired. <laughs> yeah, that was my first like professional theater experience. It was pretty late. Yeah, I mean, my Irish Catholic immigrant parents, who I love and adore, just, you know, Irish dancing and Irish yes. music was like about... It was life. Yeah. My mom did let us buy like a record of our choice when we'd go like back to school shopping. And it was usually based on the cover of the record album. So I remember the Jackson 5. I bought some of those and... It was usually like whoever had the coolest 1960s clothes on. Love that it. was sort of how I knew. My first modern dance concert was the first year of college. It was Bella Lewitsky, West Coast longtime choreographer. She was Lester Horton's assistant. Okay, yeah. And I spent one year in college in Rhode Island. So that was my first modern dance concert. And the second was the Bill Evans Company based in Seattle. Okay. And this would have been in 1979 or 80. Were you going to school for dance at the time? I went to this, I tried to come to New York. I wanted to go to NYU. Okay. Came and auditioned and got in. And I remember I went to my father and mother at dinner and said, I need a check for a deposit for the dorm at NYU. And they kind of looked at each other and looked at me and my father said, you're not going to NYU. And I was indignant. I was, yeah. are you kidding? It's my dream. and. And my father said something like, New York will eat you alive. So the deal was go somewhere else for a year and transfer. And looking back, I realized it was some tough love and they mm -hmm. loved me and I think New York City scared them and maybe they thought I was crazy or something. So my fallback school was Emerson College in Boston. Okay. So he said, you'll go there and to save money, you'll live at home. 
I did not want to live at home. No. <laughs> I was you were ready to spread your wings. <laughs> yeah, 17 years old, gay, had to get away from my parents. So my English teacher, who did all the theater at the time, her name is B.J. Williams. She's in her 90s now, still alive. She said, I know, I went to her and I said, they won't let me go to NYU, what am I gonna do? She said, I know about a college in Rhode Island. They have the theater department. You'll go there for you and you'll transfer. So I went as an actor, but I signed up for a class that I think was called Theater Dance Styles 101. But I had all this Irish step dancing training, so I was good at it. And this one woman dance department, her name was Kelly Wiki Davis. She said, who are you? Where did you study dance? You're taking all of my classes. Don't even uh, sign up for them, just show up. So I took her modern class, her choreography class. There was a ballet for actors class that was like <laughs> in a classroom where we literally like put a hand on the wall or the chalk, the chalk holder of the blackboard. And I remember we did Tondu's to Fleetwood Mac record albums. What? It's pretty cool. Yeah, pretty cool. <laughs> so when I was applying to NYU again to transfer to be an actor, this woman, Kelly, said, audition for dance. I said, are you crazy? I'll never get in. There'll be all these kids from Joffrey Ballet School and School of American Ballet. And she said, audition. So I came and they were desperate for guys. I got in and I became a dance major and that changed my life. And you know, I say she put me on the path and she stayed with me because I came, I transferred to NYU, to Tisch, to this very department mm -hmm. that I run now, which is crazy. But my second year of college, she had me come back and make a piece and teach technique. I had to get special permission and I went there almost every year. So it kind of gave me this choreographic intense workshop like make a piece mm -hmm. in two weeks or whatever it was she was on my board of directors of my oh, not-for-profit wow. my dance company she would drive down from rhode island to look at work and give me feedback she died a few years ago and i still think oh, i haven't talked to kelly in a while or she, i wish yeah. kelly would look at this piece so yeah that's how i became a dancer because i wanted to be on broadway really? i wanted to be like a chorus boy my my ideals, I always say this, were Joel Gray, who was the MC in Cabaret, and Ben Vereen, who was a star of a lot of Bob Fosse Broadway musicals. So then I found Modern Dance, and it was such a challenge because I started dancing so late. Lawrence Rhodes, or Larry Rhodes, as he's known, um, who just stepped down as, as chair of Juilliard, he was the chair at NYU then, and he really taught me how to dance. Oh. So I really credit him. And he invited Bilty Jones to make a piece I was in the piece and I basically went from college into Bill and Arnie's company. So I'm really indebted to Larry Rhodes. Is there like a specific moment for you when you remember that you just knew you wanted to pursue dance professionally or was it just over a period of time that you It was realized? kind of over a period of time. And you know, in high school, I thought if I'm gonna be on Broadway, I better take a ballet class. <laughs> and I took ballet once a week for six weeks at the Boston Conservatory in the evening. It was like older women and me and after that six week, I thought, oh, I know ballet now, now jazz or something. But it was when I came to NYU and I, the rigor, the discipline, mm -hmm. the tenacity it takes of getting up every day and going to that nine o'clock ballet class that I loved. Cause I was, you know, an overweight kid and didn't go to gym very often. You know, I wasn't an athlete mm -hmm. or anything. And suddenly like I felt physically challenged and I love this notion of technique. How do you do something consistently well. Mm -hmm. So I would say if I had to give you a moment, it would be that first year of coming to school at NYU and being a dance major. And I, I learned, I, I wanted to choreograph too. I liked 
making stuff up. I like being a maker. I like being the boss. So after college, can you tell me a little bit about your career? Yeah. So as I mentioned, I was in this piece that Bill T. Jones made called Corporate Whimsy. It went to American College Dance Festival and the Nationals and Kennedy Center. Uh-huh. And uh, when I graduated, Bill basically said, would you like to come an, an apprentice with uh, Bill T. Jones Arnie Zane Dance Company? And I say I went that first day and I stayed for 10 years. And at the time, this is just before the AIDS epidemic really struck, Arnie Zane was a choreographer and a performer and he was running the company. He really didn't want to perform anymore. He didn't want to dance. So they wanted somebody to cover him. So I fit the costumes, I moved like Arnie's. So I was sort of hired to cover Arnie. And um, I did a lot of Arnie's roles in, in the beginning of my time in the company. Then Bill and Arnie made a very important piece called Secret Pastures. It was at the Next Wave Festival at BAM. And um, I got a Bessie Award for my performance in that, which was incredible. Arnie died five years into my time at the company. It's hard to believe it's 30 years ago. Arnie would have been 70 this year. Next year, my students will reconstruct. I'll reconstruct with other people a piece of Arnie's as a tribute. So we're thinking a lot about Arnie this year. But Bill and Arnie were kind of artistic parents. And, you know, as a choreographer, it was the best comp class those 10 years somebody could have. Bill's spontaneous, uh, outrageous, political, both of them political, but um, Arnie formal, uh, loved stillness. And the two together, like, was this wonderful hybrid. Mm-hmm. Um, and you don't have to be a choreographer to dance in the company, but you have to be able to think like one. And I didn't know it at the time, but it was really a kind of a training ground. A big part of my story is that the AIDS epidemic really devastated me. I left, I was bottoming out in, in alcohol and went to rehab and everything, and I've been sober for 24 years. But I was very fortunate that a casting director went to see the Jones Zane Company, mm-hmm. remembered me, noticed I wasn't in the company, um, was told, oh, Sean left to do his own work, which was mm-hmm. partially true. And he called me and he said, I want you to audition for this thing called Stomp. Yeah. And I had an idea about what Stomp was because I'd been at the Edinburgh Festival with the Jones Zane Company. I think I saw ads on TV. I was aware there was this percussion thing. So I auditioned. It was grueling three-week process. And uh, I'm happy and very fortunate to say I was in that first American group of Stompers. So it was an exciting time for me because I finished with the Jones Zane Company. I was newly sober. I was in a hit off-Broadway show. And I did that for four years. And the Stomp people were great because they would let us leave to do, like for me to go teach or choreograph a piece. Musicians would go and tour with a band or something. So we were always leaving and coming back. And after the four years when I left to do a project or something, I intended to go back, but my work just kept picking up. It kept on evolving, yeah. And, you know, it was always understood I could go back, but I never had the chance. So after Stomp, Formed my own little group, started out with a show at St. Mark's Church Dance Space Project. It's 20 years ago now, hard to believe. Did that in next, the following year, was writing letters to the Joyce, come see my work. Got into something called All Together Different, which doesn't happen anymore at the Joyce. It was a great program for emerging choreographers. And really was focusing on my company, making money, doing the college thing. Mm -hmm. But then I got a call to uh, choreograph an opera 
that was a co-production between Glimmer Glass and the old New York City Opera. And that opened this whole opera choreography part of my life and started directing operas about eight years ago. And then about seven years ago, I was invited to apply for a position here. I said, no, I'm too young. I was about 49. I want to come, but not yet. And I talked to a friend named Lois Welk and I said, they asked me to apply, but I'm not ready. And she says, when will you be ready? And I said, my late 50s. And she said, how old do, we, do you want to be when you get that job? I said, 59. And she said, they won't hire you when you're 59. Mm -hmm. I thought she's right. I applied, I got the job. Now I'm chair. Yeah, it's incredible. All my friends I graduated with, they're like, you're the chair, Sean? <laughs> they kind of can't believe it, but here I am. So what is the process like when you were on Broadway, preparing for a Broadway show? What right. is that process like? So Stomp is off Broadway. Okay. And the audition process was grueling because Stomp was a group of 10 friends, basically, who put this thing together and it made it incredible and it became this international hit. So when they came to do the New York production, they didn't want to stay here and do it for years. They wanted to open it, have it go for few months mm -hmm. and then have American replacements. So trying to recast Stomp was like trying to recast the Beatles. So they didn't know what they were looking for, I think, that how do we get a balance? Mm -hmm. So that was the audition process. I will say learning the show is one of the hardest things I've mm -hmm. done in my professional career. I'm a music-driven choreographer. I'm a dancer who's happiest when I'm moving to interesting or beautiful music, but I'm not a musician. I don't read music, I don't play an instrument. Mm -hmm. Learning Stomp forced me very quickly to be a musician. It was one of the hardest things I've ever had to do. And I think the first show I did was, I was probably more nervous than oh, sure. any other time yeah. I went on stage. But the gifts were many. Mm -hmm. I mean, in terms of theatricality and musicality and comedy, mm -hmm. it's a funny show. And it nurtured that showbiz guy that I came to New York with. Standing ovations every night, autographs yeah. at the stage door, you know, going on Rosie O'Donnell or The Letterman. Made it all worth it. Yeah. yeah. So I'm proud and happy to say this as a joke. I say they'll put Bilty Jones, Arnie Zane Dance Company, and Stomp on my tombstone. <laughs> but I hope to be in a constant state of becoming, so mm -hmm. always learning. And I feel as a choreographer, I'm a bit of a collage artist. I take things from all over to put yeah. something together, kind of make a hybrid, make something new. Mm -hmm. So that's a little bit about the career. What it, what was it like performing the same piece every night for you, though? How did you keep it fresh? That was challenging. One of the things that kept it fresh for me is that I was hired as a swing. Now, on Broadway, they have understudies, and the understudies only go on if somebody's sick mm -hmm. or injured. A swing system implies that you're swinging in and out of the show, but swinging from part to part. There's eight roles in the show, and I covered four of them. Gosh. Swings generally cover two or three. I was... I learned four, I have a really good memory for mm -hmm. movement. And I think, you know, I don't want to speak for the stomp people, but I think they found that dancers were able to do that because we would learn stuff and learn blocking. They wouldn't call it choreography. But then the musicians were really good at improvising and jamming, which is a big part of stomp. Mm -hmm. So one thing that kept it fresh for me is that you know, there's eight tracks. Mm -hmm. One night I'd be doing this track, the next night a different track. And I would have a notebook with like, <laughs> clap funny. on the two on the four, <laughs> hit the broom on, on the offbeats or whatever it was. And I did it for four years. Mm -hmm. And I would have done it for 10 if I could have with my own work. They called me a few years ago to say, do you want to go to Las Vegas and stomp? <laughs> Maybe I should go for six months and save yeah. the money, but they wanted a year's commitment. And yes. my life isn't set up like that anymore. 
So tell me now, now that you're a choreographer, do you like to come in having already conceptualized the piece or do you like to meet with the dancers, have a complete blank slate? It has changed and evolved so much. In the beginning, I was a complete control freak. I came in with all the movement <laughs> made up. I had graph paper and arrows and things, you know. Fast forward 20 years later, I don't really make up any of the movement anymore. Mm -hmm. It's all prompts. I have beautiful dancers who think like choreographers. Mm -hmm. Most of them are choreographers. So it's a lot of creative problem solving. I always choose the music. Mm -hmm. I'm a music driven guy. Oh yeah. My challenges now as a choreographer are less about movement invention that I produce and more about a concern with how you use space in an architectural way like Mr. Balanchine would, oh, yeah. in a fluid way like Trisha Brown or maybe Merce Cunningham would. So the concerns for me as a maker now have changed. You know, for me, I'm a little tired of what I do because I have patterns and I'll make a phrase of movement and I think, oh, I've never done this before. And then I'll realize, no, I do that all the time. So it's hard to teach an old dog new tricks. But as I said, luckily I have these dancers who are so inspiring, yeah. yeah. So how is it different when you work with students at NYU versus, you know, for Broadway or for an opera? Very different because in the opera or in a Broadway show, and I've done a musical called James Joyce's The Dead, I've done a Shakespeare play that's been on Broadway, Restoration Comedy. It's all about telling a story vividly and clearly, developing characters with the actors or the singers, and helping the director with behavior. Mm -hmm. And when I say behavior, I mean movement. And I always like that quote that Martha Graham says uh, she learned from her father who was interested in psychology, I think. Movement never lies. And you know, there's all this, like if someone's lying, they'll look down or, you know. Um, so that's interesting to me. Oftentimes in an opera, if it's a handle opera, there'll be a, what they call a trouser role where a young woman is actually playing a young boy or a young man. How do I get that woman to move more like a guy, mm -hmm. right? So that's the behavioral thing. At NYU, at Tisch, the dance department here, kind of a downtown dance department. Uh, the work tends to be experimental and formed by postmodern ideas. So we're not telling stories. We're not imitating scenes from life. It's more about play. I often say this isn't a rehearsal hall, it's a laboratory. I'm looking for an authenticity. I'm looking for each choreographer's voice. And uh, I'm looking for choreographers to you know, if I was using more theatrical terms, write the play, choose the music, decide what the costuming is, help with the lighting design. There's a kind of authorship you have as a contemporary dance choreographer that you don't have in opera or theater. Mm -hmm. In opera or theater, it's a team, a director, a scenic designer, a costume designer, a choreographer, now often a sound designer, a fight director. So there's a team of people but uh, if you're making a dance, it's you might be collaborating with a composer or, you know, a visual artist. It's much artist. more simple. Yeah. And I always like to joke that when I'm in opera and, you know, the price of someone's wig would pay a dancer for a month. <laughs> it's crazy. I like to get back to the world of lights and tights. <laughs> I think Mr. Balanchine coined that expression. Yeah. But we don't need much put on a show. So tell me more about your role here, being yeah. the chair of the Department of Dance at Tisch School of the Arts, such a huge honor, yeah. so tell me about that. Being chair is daunting. You do it in three-year cycles, and I just finished three years, and the dean asked me to do three more, so 
I've relaxed a bit and in my head and in my heart I say I must be doing something right that's mm -hmm. me to do it again the first years were very difficult I suffered from something that I didn't even know had a name I found out it's called imposter syndrome the person who shared this with me said don't worry every successful person has a bit of imposter syndrome there are certain people Oh, like the president of the United States right now, not naming names, but his initials are a DT. Um, maybe if he had a little imposter syndrome, it could only help. But you know, I had this sinking feeling that somebody would like come in and say, oh, he's not fit to be chair or he can't do this job. But again, in a constant state of becoming, I wasn't an administrator, now I am. I learned how to delegate. I learned how to be, say no. I'm really confident as a contemporary dance teacher, I can teach people how to dance with technique. I can teach them to be virtuosic and what's that, but taking difficult things to do and making them look easy, right? I love teaching composition. It makes me a better choreographer because I learn from my comp students. Mm -hmm. And I teach first year comps. So we get a lot of 17 year olds who've never made a dance before. And when I tell them that no steps in this class that have a French name. They laugh, but then they understand how difficult it is to have authenticity, to find your voice, to play and be inventive. So I find it very stressful. I'm turning into Ebenezer Scrooge, I joke, because, you know, I'm 56 and the college age students now come. There's a different kind of entitlement. They are, you know, the from the call me out culture mm -hmm. where they'll call you out. I feel invisible. Um, you're ignoring this group of people. I spring into action. But I find that after the complaint is made, there's no follow-up. Mm -hmm. You know, I lived through the AIDS crisis. I went to ACT UP meetings. I was in the streets. And I don't want to come down on the younger generation, but there's also this thing called the armchair warrior. You know, you hit send on your phone after you've bitched or moaned or complained, and you feel a little better. Mm -hmm. How are you following that up? Artists are changers, right? Mm -hmm. Is art, We have many jobs in a society, hold a mirror up, ask difficult questions, but an artist's job is to change how you think about something or mm -hmm. how you see something. This idea of transformation, when you come to the theater, you wanna leave a little different. So I'm, I'm finding that challenging, that there's a neediness in the students that I think we didn't have, and um, there's a lack of grit mm -hmm. and determination. For you, knowing that, what is the best advice that you give your students that you want well, them to take away from this program here? You know, as you came in, I was writing an email uh, to the Dean of Students uh, responding to a complaint a student made this morning. And I was tough on the student. And I was basically saying, toughen up. Mm -hmm. And I was basically saying, I'm your dance teacher. I'm not your therapist. <laughs> you true. need to, there's places like the wellness center, you know, you need to, to utilize the utilize resources. That. And if you're worried about somebody, drag them there. Mm -hmm. I'm springing into action. I'm going to help. You know, I firmly believe if you want a result, you take an action. Mm -hmm. I am solution based. I'm a self starter. I, I fix problems, but, um, I also believe in kind of a metaphysical way, we're 100% responsible for everything mm -hmm. in our lives. Now, do I believe we choose our parents and we're incarnated? Uh, that's a stretch for me. <laughs> but I do feel that we are uh, infinite choice makers. You make millions of choices mm -hmm. all the time. 
make the right choice. Mm -hmm. And if you make the wrong choice, understand that mistakes are great teachers, learn from that and move, move on. on. So the short answer to your question is, I find I have to be tougher and tougher and tougher. And I'm an old softy, mm -hmm. you know. I'm starting to really believe in this Darwinian notion of dance wherein only the strong survive. And I love all my students. I'm gonna be a great encourager. I'm gonna to try to push everyone. But I understand more and more it's the students who are hungriest, mm -hmm. who are the hardest workers, who are the most responsible, who, who are the most curious. They are the ones who are going to go on and have careers. It's the sink or swim. Exactly. Survival of the fittest. Yeah. I just want to take a moment here to discuss how we can think critically about the Darwinian notion that Curran talks about. As a former professional dancer, I have seen this thinking at play in dance companies and schools, and I think it's important to think about its blind spots. Often the influence of race, class, and gender differences are left out of the conversation in the dance world, while values of natural ability are emphasized. There's a history of using Darwinian ideas to understand racial difference and justify racist policies, which I think is pertinent to think about here. In The Racial State by David Theo Goldberg, he argues that historically Darwin's ideas were used by eugenicists to justify racial separation. This later shifted in the late 19th century to a culturalist articulation, where it was used to understand cultural differences between races as genetic. While they are often not explicitly addressing race, the underlying origins of these ideas are important to think about. These discourses have percolated into state institutions and the general public. The dance world does not exist in a vacuum, and often the playing field is extremely inequitable. When one talks about natural ability, it ignores the social factors at play. The attributes that are often valued within the dance world, and in the U.S. more generally, are those that are stereotypically attributed to white, cisgender, heterosexual, and upper middle class people. It is a field where most who are able to become successful are coming from white middle class backgrounds and who express a normative gender presentation. Someone who comes from a culture where one might express interests differently, where one might not have access to the same resources, might be seen as having less natural ability when in fact they are just not adhering to hegemonic or dominant values within the dance world. We cannot ignore inequities around racial, class, and gender differences that are embedded in our society and that not only affect access to the arts but also cause harm to individuals within institutions. I hope that dance educators and directors consider where the ideas that they adhere to come from and how they can be harmful and exclusionary to dancers of diverse backgrounds. And on that note, now back to the interview. So can you tell me about your most recent piece? I know you were just in New Orleans, so yeah. can you tell us about that? Yeah, so I just uh, remounted my choreography for an opera called Champion, an opera in jazz. It is by the incredible jazz performer and composer, Terence Blanchard, and it tells a true story of a African, well, African American, he immigrated from uh, St. Thomas in the Virgin Islands, a man named Emil Griffith, who became a boxer in the, in the 60s, became a champion, was a closeted gay man, and at a weigh-in for a fight, he was fighting somebody named Benny the Kid Perrette, 
you know, when they the way and they get on the scales yes. before the fight, this other fighter called him maricon, which means oh. faggot in, in oh Spanish. My gosh. And um, it was kind of a secret, like it was in the 60s. You know, you could be an out gay man, uh, like it is today, maybe. But the fighter was so enraged that they got in the ring. It was a fair fight. But he hit him so hard, he basically killed him. And then he lived with the guilt of that for the rest of his life. And his life started to unravel. So that's an opera where I was the choreographer. Mm -hmm. There are six dancers. They do all sorts of roles in the opera. How long did it take you to choreograph that? Well, it's tight time-wise. The original production was at the Opera Theater of St. Louis. We probably had three weeks in the rehearsal room and then a week of tech on stage and then it opens. And when you're doing a new piece that nobody's ever done before, you're finding out a lot as you go. The librettist, Michael Christopher was there, the composer, Terrence Blanchard, changing lines, editing, changing music. I would be with the dancers. We all come together. When you're doing a remount, you know, I say we're not starting from scratch, but we are starting over in a sense because the dancers are local dancers, fabulous dancers from the Merini Opera Ballet in, in New Orleans. And I need to tailor it to their, you know, talents and special things they can do. My most recent contemporary dance was inspired by a tour my company did in Central Asia. And it was a program, sadly it it's, doesn't exist anymore, called Dance Motion USA. The State Department, United States State Department, uh, basically paid for it, but Joe Melillo, who runs BAM, Brooklyn Academy of Music, curated it and he sent my company for five weeks to Central Asia. We met this incredible musical group in Bishkek, which is the capital city of Kyrgyzstan. Uh, and I was so inspired by the, the music, the folk music, I thought I wanna make a dance to that. Seemed like an impossible dream. I'm determined, I'm tenacious. Yeah, uh, I made it happen. happen. And so the dance was, if I had to say it was about something, you know, I love Merce Cunningham's line, the dance is about the dancing. The dance is about the dancing, but it was about this five week surreal kind of tour we did in a very set of foreign countries. Mm -hmm. It had a dream logic. There's a line, actually there's a poem by Walt Whitman. There's a line in a poem, I should say, no, the poem is called Dreamed in a Dream. And there was something I love that, the paradox uh, and the irony kind of of that. And I'm very proud of that. It was my first evening length, it was an hour. But not to go on and on, but I'm making a new dance now called Everywhere All the Time that will premiere back at BAM at the next wave festival in October. And it's probably the toughest thing I've ever tried to make. Music is brilliant, it's by Donica Dennehy, an Irish new music composer, but it sounds more like weather than music. And there's not kind of a musical structure I can hang choreography on and that tells me what to do. Yeah. There aren't motifs there's that There's set counts or nothing. Yeah. There's no counting. It's so it's, hard. So I'm trying to do a Cage Cunningham thing where I don't worry so much about the music and I make a dance and-, and Let the movement together. take it. Yeah. yeah. So that's the next thing in the pipeline and I'll, uh, I've been working on it in fits and starts. I go back to it in the summer. So how do you manage, I mean, being the chair of NYU Tisch School of the Arts, having your own dance company, traveling and choreographing for yeah. operas? I mean, it's like you never have a minute to, to breathe. It's true. And, you know, I have this great therapist who's like this. He's an executive coach. He deals with gay men who have long-term sobriety. And he keeps saying to me, Sean, you know you're allowed to say no. <laughs> but I don't want to say no. You're hungry. You I'm hungry. Yeah. You know, it's such a big part of my identity. 
And I think it's tied into the fact that I'm a sober person. And a lot of my tenacity or my drive, it's all about proving I'm a worthwhile person, mm -hmm. I'm a talented person, I'm a smart person. Because when you're an addict and you're bottoming out, you disappoint a lot of people. And I don't do AA, but I did for a few years. You know, this idea of making amends, mm -hmm. kind of asking for forgiveness or something. So in an odd way, I feel that my work ethic in a way is, is a kind of amends, but I get so much out of it. Now, I don't have a partner, I don't have a social life, I don't own anything because most of my earned income goes right into my dance yeah. company. I'm not complaining, mm -hmm. right? And, you know, I got back from New Orleans last night. I'm seeing a ton of people today at NYU. Spring break is next week. I'm going to make a dance for 40 teenagers in Los Angeles. Oh my God. A place called The Wooden Floor. So it sustains me. I do have a lot of energy. I've always taken it for granted. People have always said like, how do you do so much? Or how, where do you get your energy? 56, I'm starting to feel it wane. Yeah. It's like the function of age. Mm -hmm. I'm a little freaked out by it. Your body changes, mm -hmm. lower back pain, knees. So I have to listen to that. Mm -hmm. There is a kind of satisfaction. You know, I'm never complacent. I'm never bored. There's sometimes when you have to get it up at, you know, five in the morning to make a seven o'clock flight to get back to see a dance concert and mm -hmm. the flight is delayed four hours. You know, that's that was yesterday. Mm -hmm. I made it back in time for the concert, <laughs> but the stress, it does wear on you. But, you know, I used to say I was happy is when I was moving or dancing to interesting or beautiful music. You know, this idea of when is your life in flow? Is it being a mother? Is it cooking a meal? Is it painting a painting? Is it reading a book? Is it going to a museum? For me, it was about dancing. And now it's about making dances, giving my dancers dances to dance, but also as a teacher, because I do have this sense of responsibility of passing something on. I love dance history. That really informs my process. You know, speaking an old language in a new way with a contemporary accent Sounds like I'm writing a grant, but that's something I try to do. And the students teach me every day. So for you, which role did you feel like pushed you the most outside of your comfort zone during your career? Well, you know, my immediate response is the first opera I choreographed and the first opera I directed. I had been into operas that Bill T. Jones had had choreographed. I'd never seen an opera, opera. I'd never sat in the audience. And all of a sudden, I'm in this huge production. It was called L'Etoile. It's a Chabrier opera. Mark Lemos, brilliant, you know, award-winning director. And I listened to that CD a hundred times. I don't read music. I looked at every production of L'Etoile I could find on DVD, on the internet, and I went in completely prepared. And I had a plan B, and then I had a plan C. And it went great. Everyone loved the work. I didn't have to use the plan B, you know? <laughs> and I thought, okay, maybe I can do this. Years later, when the artistic director of Opera Theater of St. Louis called me up to say, you know that production of Salome you were gonna choreograph? We actually would like you to direct it. I said, great, I'd love to. And I hung up the phone and I just about, <laughs> yeah, passed out. Like, I'm not an opera director. So it's a cliche, but this idea of fake it till you make it, do your homework, be prepared. I've directed many productions since. I'm gonna be directing La Cenarentola, which is basically the story of Cinderella for Opera Theater of St. Louis in a couple of years. This summer I go back to St. Louis, choreograph three operas. 
So yeah, the opera world challenged me. I think in terms of dancing, there was a piece called D-Man, well, there's still a piece called D-Man in the Waters that Bill T. Jones made that I loved dancing. And when I left the Jones Ang Company, I thought, how will I live my life without doing this dance anymore? I will miss doing this dance. Mm -hmm. I even thought like, if and when I'm lucky enough to meet a partner, how will he really know me if he hasn't seen this dance, <laughs> right? So that's how important that dance was. And you know, all the dances I did in the Bill T. Jones on his own dance company. Um, so leaving the company was difficult because I think I really thought I'm gonna be here for my life. Mm -hmm. My dad, Irish immigrant, worked for the same company for 30 something years. I thought that's what you did. So I knew there'd become a time when I wouldn't dance anymore, but I thought I would stay with the company and assist or rehearsal direct or whatever. But I had to leave to, for my own voice mm -hmm. to come out. So what was the funniest thing that happened to oh, you God. during a live performance? I read I this and I thought of two things. I'm gonna tell you one, in Stomp, the end of the show there's a section where I think two of us run out from upstage right and left and we have both have trash can lids on our hands and you hit the deck and you slide on the floor. Mm -hmm. And the Stomp Theater in New York is called the Orpheum. It's a small theater. It's oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And there's what you would call a tow rail at the edge of the stage, like a lip. And I <laughs> careened into that and it broke off and I ended up in the front row in the lap <laughs> of some poor lady. <laughs> Not my whole body, but like, I immediately thought, oh my God, she's hurt. Luckily she wasn't hurt. She was as shocked she's as framed. I was. And I kind of <laughs> crawled back up on stage and I was like, are you okay? And she was like, okay. <laughs> so that was a crazy night in the theater. So if you weren't a dancer, choreographer, director, uh, I mean, so many things, yeah. what would you be doing instead? Well, I love black and white photography. I love antique photographs. I have a collection of those. Sounds strange, but I have a collection of antique mannequin heads. <laughs> Very I, interesting. I made a solo with 20 child mannequins in the space. Like, I love pic paintings of people, pictures of people, sculptures of people. And even as a little kid, I was drawn to mannequins in stores. But I'm also interested in uh, like fashion, clothing, like mm -hmm. how we present ourselves. Mm -hmm. I'm such a performer that I, it's hard. I've been asked this question many times. It's hard for me to imagine. This is kind of an odd thing, but I, I'm not going to have the opportunity to be a parent. Mm -hmm. So I always think like, what would it have been like to have been a parent? I'm not their parents, but I do have 130 young yeah, dancers you feel, here. Yeah, I'm more, <laughs> more of a gunkle, like a big gay <laughs> uncle, big gay dance uncle. But I like design or something. Yeah, something with imagination. Yeah. I always wish I was a better writer. I have no confidence in my writing skill. To be a poet, wouldn't that be interesting? Write music, a composer. Yeah. And what other art forms interest you? Like you were saying music yeah. and... Antique photography. The, the collection I have is, a group, is groups of people pictures. So um, it's called Circuit Camera, and you've probably seen them. It's like a long yeah. horizontal. Okay. And it was a camera that like panned. So it'll be a, a group of army guys, graduating class from college, a bunch so of panoramic. athletes. It's kind of panoramic, okay. yeah, of those. And I love looking in the faces of these old people. Historian, mm -hmm. I'd love to be a history. And these the faces and what are their individual stories and what did they suffer and what brought them joy. And For you, what differentiates dance from all other art forms? Well, I like to say it's an abstract visual language. Um, I feel that 
dance and music, I'm gonna combine them here, can rouse emotion in an audience member in a way like nothing else mm -hmm. can. Certainly music can do it on its own. Mm -hmm. But when there's a human being up there moving to this music, and it's almost like you can't even name the emotion, but it'll make you feel something. I think, you know, dancers' careers are, are so short in a way that there's something precious about it. I work in opera, as you know. Opera singers are not hitting their stride till their late 30s or 40s, mm -hmm. and they sing into their 70s, some of them. And, you know, we dance a lot longer than we used to, but one thing I say to my students is, I really miss dancing. Mm -hmm. I miss performing. It's a short-lived career. Yeah. So savor it. Mm -hmm. Don't take it for granted. It's funny, I feel like I've turned into that guy, like, you know, get out your violin and... So, you were saying before how you have an excellent memory. How did you develop that and how do you think dancers, stagers, choreographers yeah. develop that? Well, I'm worried now about my short-term memory. That's another function of age. I feel like my short-term memory isn't as sharp as it was and I'm taking cognitive health supplements and everything, eating blueberries every morning. But I think, I really believe in this notion of muscle memory. Mm -hmm. If you put on a piece of music that was that, that accompanied a dance I did 25 years ago, my body will intuitively respond. It's almost like my brain my brain yeah. is involved, I know that. Much. <laughs> but there's something about the music that triggers a part of our brain, maybe an old primordial kind of deep kind of part of your brain that will get you to move. Mm -hmm. And my memory is mostly about movement. And I was useful to the choreographers I danced for because I could remember stuff. And phrases I've made up myself, like I teach technique and I'll be like, hmm, I haven't done that phrase in years. What is it, you know? And generally I don't have to go back to the video. I, through trial and error, you know, I'll be yeah. missing bits. I do it over, oh, that one here, or I did that out of order. Do you like to write it down or no? I used to. I have this crazy thing called Shauna notation. It was like <laughs> stick figures and ice skater move and like little, you know, uh, parallel assembly like a bird. There were like little things yeah, you do as dancers. Yeah, you remember, yeah. yeah. Nickname it. But I think, you know, it's just a talent some of mm -hmm. us have. People say it all the time and it's, you know, it's like people used to say you have so much energy and I was like, I do. I'm just like being my normal mm -hmm. self. The thing with the mem remembering steps and all is the body learns through repetition. We rehearse, we repeat, you know, it's like a actor memorizing lines. Mm -hmm. And the interesting thing about an actor, if he or she have been in three plays in a row and they have three sets of lines from three different plays in their head, memorizing a fourth play is going to be really easy. Mm -hmm. If they haven't been in a play for three years, they've proven it's a lot harder. Mm -hmm. So what did the great postmodernist Yvonne Rayner say? The mind is a muscle. Mm -hmm. So for you, what are your hopes and concerns for the future of dance? Oh my gosh. My hopes and concerns for the future now, right now are mostly about the, the country. Oh, and the NEA and this kind, the kind of mendacity mm -hmm. we deal with every day on the news from the people we've elected to lead us and the complacency of the far right. Mm -hmm. And, you know, for decades they've been bashing us over the head about sin, sinfulness. And now they give people what they call, what do they call it, the golf thing? A MacGuffin or something? Or a Mac I'm just... I am shocked by the hypocrisy of our country and our leaders. And so I'm not a person who prays anymore. I will say I like to project the end result. Mm -hmm. So I hope for a better future. I work towards that. But it's really about that. 
Now, as I said earlier, artists are changers. Mm -hmm. And um, I really believe that. And, you know, I danced for one of the best, Mr. Bilty Jones, mm -hmm. who, you know, kind of has had his fist in the air his whole career, made very important work, made poetic, beautiful work just to savor, save, savor, but made pieces like Last Supper at Uncle Tom's Cabin, made pieces like Still Here. Mm -hmm. You know, big, difficult questions. Mm -hmm. Might not have answers, but he wants to ask the questions. So I feel in a way I learned from the best. Mm -hmm. Now, my voice is different. I think I have more poetic concerns, but I like to ask the question, who gets to dance with whom, you know? There was always two men, two women, and a man and a woman doing the, maybe the same material. And it got to be a joke in my company where they were like, are you the homo, the hetero, or the lesbo duet? Now, I started my company 20 years ago. People don't believe it, but the world has changed <laughs> an sure. incredible yeah. amount since then. So maybe we don't have to ask those questions in New York, but we got to ask them in certain places. There's this, uh, the guy who won the bronze medal in ice skating who mm -hmm. sort of stood up to Mike Pence. I thought that was pretty incredible. There's an athlete, an artist too, of course, but an athlete, you know, asking big, important questions, challenging. You know, that's, you know, that's for the future. Audiences are dwindling. Mm -hmm. People are happy to, you know, go on the YouTube, as I call it, and yeah. kind of sit back. I do worry about technology. You know, I was at a dance concert last night here at NYU, and I sit in the back row, and it's 12 pieces. They're about eight minutes long. There's an intermission. But between every dance, out come the cell phones, mm -hmm. the lights light up, and everyone's looking at their cell phone. So if you came to the dance concert with that friend or that partner, you're looking at your phone and you're not talking to the person about the piece you just saw, I can't change that. I mean, I even thought like, do we make an announcement and say like, please turn off your cell phones and don't turn them on in between the pieces? You know, I've said for years, uh, organized religion creates as many problems as it solves. I feel now technology does the same thing. Technology causes as many problems as it solves. Now, I'm a Luddite, you know, I can barely open an email attachment. I'm not proud of it. I try to make light of it. The other day I was on a Skype call and I said, oh, at the end, like, you're lucky I figured out Skype because I, I had to... It's confusing. I mean, technology is confusing. I thought I had it on my computer. Yeah. I hadn't used it in so long. It had changed. They disconnected. I figured it out. Mm -hmm. But dance is the last art form that you really need to experience in real time mm -hmm. in a real place. You have to show up. You have to buy a ticket metaphysically, metaphorically. I don't mean pay your $15 at the box office. I mean, I wish tickets were $15, but <laughs> you have to kind of sit there and enter into a world, you know, and make decisions and choices. Martha Graham is famous for saying uh, to a comp student who complained, somebody gave her feedback and that's not my dance, they didn't get it. And supposedly, I don't know if Martha Graham said this, but. She says, I'm like, if somebody sees something in your dance, even if it's not there, it's there. And I love that about what we do as dance. It's not written out for you. You need to bring imagination. So yeah, it's a loaded question. I don't have kids, but I have nieces and nephews that I love. And I, I do think, what, what world are we giving mm -hmm. them? You don't think you're gonna turn into that crotchety old person, but I can see how it happens. Mm -hmm. And I guess, you know, we've been around for thousands of years, so life will go on, but I don't want to lose that interconnectedness. Again, 
this is a light motif of this interview, where do I end and we begin? Mm -hmm. You're not going to find out if you're sitting in a theater next to somebody texting or looking at your Facebook feed. So then for you, how do you keep dance alive and how do you keep people interested in yeah. dance? Well, a big part of my approach is that I, I bring a sense of irony and wit and humor. It's very disarming. And in a class, I will try to be irreverent. I'll try to get people to turn off their inner critic. I, I say things like it's not a mirror, it's a window, you know, look through mm -hmm. the window. One of the kids today was complaining about fat mirrors. I was like, really? Oh, gosh, yeah. You have time to worry about that. And I always make sure there's live music. And you know, I'm old school now. I teach a Lamone Cunningham kind of thing. I don't teach Gaga. That's great. And I respect it, it has a place. But there's, there's always gonna be, you know, ballet we've done for thousands of years. I say, if you're a dancer, tap dancer, hula dancer, break dancer, ballet is a kind of Latin. If you're gonna be a doctor or lawyer, you learn Latin. So you can read old law or you can write a prescription, you know. If you're going to be a dancer, you need to learn ballet. Mm -hmm. So there's some fundamental stuff that I'll always stress. What are your views on the importance of creativity in the humanities? Oh boy. It's probably the most important thing I can think of. Well, I think of two things in terms of history. The humanities show us how we were, why we were, what we were. When you look back and you read like what it was being a woman in the 14th century or what it was like to be an explorer in the North Pole, I don't know. Those documents are testaments of time and they teach us something. But then I also think about the future. What are we doing now? What seeds are we planting to inform the future? So, you know, I've talked a little bit about the job art, the arts do for us, ask questions, hold a mirror up. But I think the history is so important. That's why people flock to the Da Vinci exhibit mm -hmm. at the Met, or now the David Bowie exhibit at the Brooklyn Museum. That's what they wore. That's how the, the world of ideas worked then, you know. Um, it's not Da Vinci, it's Michelangelo. Am I right? I believe so. I yeah. think it's Michelangelo. <laughs> yeah. So incredibly important. I, I wrestle with this uh, thing in our country, like how uh, professional sports has become this kind of phenomenon. And I think the arts and humanities get short shrifted mm -hmm. for this competitive, sometimes violent, you know, if it's football. I don't get that, but that's just who I am. There's a place for that too, don't get me wrong. Mm -hmm. And I said it earlier, but making sense out of a chaotic universe where bad things happen to good people. Arts will help you figure that out. Read a Maya Angelou book. That will give you some insight into someone's experience. Mm -hmm. There's a book called The Velvet Rage, Growing Up Straight in a Gay Man's World that I read a few years ago. Incredibly important. It was written in the 80s. It still spoke to me, mm -hmm. you know. So read a Shakespeare sonnet and give it to someone you love. Yeah. The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Caroline Doherty and Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate Interviews producer on this podcast was Bela Unger. Digital Media Coordinator is Phoebe Browse. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you would like to get involved with our creative community, 
exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thanks for listening.